Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast with stories of hijinks and whimsy from Las Vegas, an in-depth look at the latest Pokemon game, a quick chat regarding a recent biopic about one heck of a singer, my experience with live dinner theater, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Andrew Logan, and let's dive right into it. So in classic me tradition, I can't go to Las Vegas and not come back with just a ton of stories to tell you, and this week is no exception. I have several very fun, awesome stories to regale you with this week. We've got three brand new Harry Potter chapters. We have two brand new songs of the week, including a song of the week first. That's right. Our first fan-submitted song cover. I am so excited about that. We'll get to that a little later on. I talk about the new Let's Go Eevee and Pikachu games for the Nintendo Switch. I talk about Bohemian Rhapsody. But first, at the top of the hour, I just want to do a couple of housekeeping things. Number one, so sorry about taking last week off. Got a couple of messages of people being like, Hey, where's where's the episode? And I was like, ah, I'm in Vegas. I couldn't, couldn't do one. Sorry, guys. So sorry. Uh, but we're back this week with an extra long episode to help make up for it. And I wanted to do a couple of things. Number one, the Patreon live stream for the month of November will be this upcoming Sunday, the Sunday after Black Friday and after Thanksgiving. It will be Sunday, November 25th. It's the final Sunday of the month. Sorry, it occurred so late in the month this time around. I'll try to aim for like mid-December um, for the for the next one. So you know kind of kind of will balance out but it's going to be on november 25th and if you want to see the patreon live stream all you need to do is you need to go to patreon.com forward slash going up cast and support the patreon at the five dollar level and i will send you a link where you can come enjoy the wonderful live stream with me and everybody else i have a couple of fun ideas of games that we can play so i'm very much looking forward to that we hang out we chat you ask questions we talk about whatever it's a lot of fun i love doing them and i would love to see you all there watching the live stream so be sure you check that out before the 25th otherwise you might have to wait to december <gasps> oh my god so there's that and i also want to wish you all a very happy thanksgiving it is this upcoming thursday i hope you all have a wonderful time with your friends and your family just eating whatever food you desire um for me and my family it's a big old tradition to do the classic big turkey dinner and we usually watch the macy's thanksgiving day parade and all that fun stuff it's just it's a grand old time and i'm very much looking forward to it not the least of which being i have that day off so that's that's very nice uh that's very nice indeed so without further ado let's dive right into all of my fun stories for this week on the going upcast starting with a tale from las vegas So those of you who listened to the episode from a couple of weeks ago know that last week I was in Las Vegas. Now a lot happened that week. I'm not going to beat around the bush. It was an incredibly busy week. Uh, for for the vast majority of it though, it was a predominantly business focused trip. I don't want to spend too much time on the subject, but I'm going to give you just enough for context. Uh, basically what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks is pursuing something called green belt certification for something called Lean Six Sigma. Basically, what it means is I look at a process like cooking. I'm using these as examples. Let's say I was looking at cooking breakfast as a process. Um, I could identify moments or periods or steps in that process that are not necessary uh, for the production of the final product or ways that the progression of these steps could be done more efficiently. 
Um, we test those methods. We prove with data that those new methods are better than the old methods, implement those new methods, and then reap the benefits of such changes. And that's basically what Lean Six Sigma is all about. It's about identifying where in processes that businesses go through, we can make improvements. It gives you the tools to make those improvements. It gives you the tools to prove that your improvements were actually improvements and then allows you to plan the next improvement phase. Um, that's kind of the whole thing about it. And this was week one of two, the second week's early next spring. So I will be back in Las Vegas come January, February, March-ish time. But when I wasn't in the classroom taking feverish notes and sending emails back and forth between a whole bunch of people, um, I was out enjoying Las Vegas. I know, right? What a freaking shock. You guys might have thought I got my fill of it a couple weeks ago when I was in Las Vegas, but no. Now, I do have a lot of stories uh, for Las Vegas. I'm going to tell you a couple of them in this episode of the podcast. Um, I'm basically going to only tell you the stories worth telling. You know, like some of those, like, you know, oh, we went out to this restaurant and got some tapas and it was a fun night. It's not, it's not worth, it's not a story worth telling, but I've got, I've got one story I'm going to tell you right now. I'm sure there's going to be another story somewhere else in this podcast, but I'm going to tell you this one because it's the, it's the best story of the week and I'm still dealing with the fallout of this story. So Wednesday, all right, last Wednesday, we went to this place called Fremont street. It is North of the strip in downtown Las Vegas. It is this kind of, <sighs> Times Square slash street carnival slash mini strip, basically, is what it is. It's got, like, this big canvas over this section of street. I think it's, like, three blocks long. Uh, it's got a bunch of casinos in it. It's got a bunch of restaurants. It's got a lot of street performers. There's a zip line that goes all the way through it. It's a lot of LED neon lights. Um, a lot of projections of images and stuff like that. There's, like, the Walking Dead survival experience attraction there. It's very touristy. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Universal City sitting outside of like Universal Studios, if you've ever been there. Very, very fucking similar. So we're there, and we're wandering around, taking in the sights, you know, popping into some of the casinos, uh, seeing, seeing what there is to do. And at the very end of this street from where we started, there's a place called Container Park. Now, Container Park is an open-air shopping center slash restaurant place slash booze and cruise and bar slash open air like concert venue there's like this big fake lawn and there's a stage and they had like a dj playing later on they did karaoke it's very open it's very friendly and it's it's very it's a lot of fun there's this big dumb fucking huge metal praying mantis that shoots fire out of its antennae um you'll see pictures of of some of the things i'm talking to you about right now um on the blog if you want to go take a look at that including the praying mantis and uh the the, the entrance to container park um the reason it's called Container Park is that every shop and the the buildings basically are built out of shipping containers, those big, huge metal shipping containers. So a lot of the shops are really small because they're all the same size, uh, which gives it a really cool kind of boutique-y, hipster-y feel because these shops kind of rotate in and out with some frequency, so there's always something new to check out every time you go. And we hit a couple of the bars, uh, just kind of having a good time. But what really drew me into this place um, that I didn't really know about until we saw like a video the day before was in the dead center of this huge complex. There's a thing called the treehouse, and the treehouse 
is a how many stories four four story tall um construct of a fake tree and like a metal tower full of slides now i'm a kid for, for sure like let's not beat around the bush i just spent 20 minutes talking about the new pokemon game and that may have been before or after this moment i'm not sure but i'm gonna talk about pokemon in this episode but it has been some time since i went down a slide now i'd be lying if i said alcohol had anything to do with what followed after this because i would have done this completely stone cold sober because i cannot pass up the opportunity of a big dumb slide sitting right in front of me especially when after nine o'clock the whole place becomes 21 and over including the fucking slides like, they, they clearly want adults to use these fucking slides. Who am I to deprive them of their, you know, core clientele? Now, the last time I went down a slide, it was probably a water slide. It probably had an inner tube. And it was probably straight. It was a straight shot. These slides, it was very late at night. They're very tall. I've not gone down a slide in a long time. These slides were pitch fucking black on the inside. You could not see the turns coming. And those turns are not fucking safe. <laughs> they were like 90 fucking degree turns, okay? It went like bam, bam, and there's like a wall of a slide. Now, granted, it's been a while since I've slid, but I don't think those turns are physically possible without you slamming into the side of these fucking slides. Anyway, I still thought I could do it. So I go to the very top of the tower because I'm not a... I'm not gonna fucking back down. I'm gonna go straight for the King Mamba Jamba, biggest slide in the treehouse. Went straight to the top of that fucking thing. Took a couple of pictures of Fremont Street. None of them looked very good. You're probably not gonna see them on the blog. Anyway, I get ready to go down the slide. And there's a big little fucking warning sign right over the edge of the slide that says, Warning, sharp turns. And I was like, I got this. It's fine. I got this. I get, I start going. First of all, slides, very steep, sharp turns that you can't see coming. I slam into the side of the slide, just going, bam! And I was like, ow. And I kind of scoot down because I killed all my momentum. I scoot down. And then it just fucking kind of drops out from underneath you because it goes down even sharper. And I slid further. And I kind of tuck my left leg in to like prep for what I think is the turn coming. And the turn came way sooner than I thought it did. My right foot slams into the side of the slide and bends inward. And bam, right there pretty sure I sprained my ankle in that instant it was fucking painful I have sprained my ankle once in the past but just slam right into it and I was like okay ow and I kind of scooch out of the slide there and I hobble back to where like my family's sitting and um you know I'm like oh my god my ankle's fucking broken holy shit we gotta go to the ER like right now go get the go get the car and I'm, I'm, I'm freaking out. It was, it was a very painful injury. I'm not proud of, <laughs> I'm not proud of the injury and how I handled it. Um, I called like a bunch of different ERs. A lot of them were closed. I called the 24 hour one. It was going to be like a four and a half hour wait before anybody could even see me. And I was like, you know what? I'm probably fine. Let's, <laughs> let's go to fucking Walgreens so I can get a brace for my goddamn ankle and I'll just hobble around for a couple of days. And that's what we did. <laughs> Went to Walgreens, got me a got me a security brace for the old ankle there, and I hobbled around for a couple of days. Now, as of recording this, it's been maybe five days since the incident. 
Um, I most assuredly sprained my ankle. The bruising on my ankle is gone down dramatically. It never really got that bad. Um, and like I've I'm regaining the ability to walk like a normal human being better every day. Um, chances are I'm gonna have a lot of soreness in that ankle. You know, I want to be careful and I don't fucking strain it again, but in the heat of the moment when you're a little inebriated and you slam into the fucking side of a pitch black slide and you think you break your ankle, you tend to panic a little bit. And um it's 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 before I've really had to tell anybody besides like immediate friends and family members that I sprained my ankle and especially how I did it. And now you know, <laughs> faithful listener, that I'm an idiot and I sprained my ankle going down a slide like a child. So, not a high point for me, but I gotta admit, that's a pretty fucking good story. That's a pretty fucking good story. So, my advice to you, if you ever find yourself in Container Park and you're looking at those slides going, I can do that, bring a flashlight or do it in the day when you can actually see the goddamn turns coming. Because if you can't see those turns coming, you're going to break something. And according to my family, after I got out of the slides, me slamming into the side of these slides at like top speed shook the entire treehouse. The whole thing rattled and roared when I was slamming into those things. So, you know, at least I made an impression. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun. Um, not breaking my ankle, but the rest of Container Park was a lot of fun. Um, admittedly, the night did not end the way I wanted it to. And the way I see it, um, I owe that slide a rematch. That's the way I see it. I don't see this as I'm never going to go down a slide again. I see this as that slide beat me. It won the battle, but it's not going to win the fucking war. So come next spring, I'm going to go back to Container Park during the day when I can see the fucking turns coming and I'm going to conquer the goddamn slide. It will not beat me. Not now, not ever. This is just merely a setback. Are you with me? Are you with me? Yes. So, yes, that was a lot of fun. I did enjoy it. I got hurt doing it, but I don't regret it for an instant. There's a lot of dumb shit I've done in my past that I don't regret. And maybe one day I'll tell you all of those stories. But I think that story is good enough to stand on its own. <laughs> Two legs. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I think I'm funny. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. This week we have three brand spanking new Harry Potter chapters to discuss, to listen to, to enjoy, to revel in the humor of these young wizards trying to find their way through self-identity crises and the onset of puberty and all sorts of other various issues. We've got chapter 13, Mad-Eye Moody, chapter 14, The Unforgivable Curses. In chapter 15, Bobaton and Durmstrang. And this week's little moment that I want to talk about comes to us from chapter 15, where even I, the master of keeping my voices straight and consistent, tend to stumble. Let's take a listen. Dumbledore started to clap. The students following his lead broke into applause too, many of them standing on tiptoe, the better to look at this woman. Her face relaxed into a gracious smile as she walked forward towards Dumbledore, extending a glittering hand. Dumbledore, though tall himself, had barely had barely to bend his knee to kiss it. My dear Madame Maxime... Oh, sorry. Fucking... What was that? It's Dumbledore! My dear Madame Maxime! He said, Welcome to Hogwarts! Dumbledore! 
said Madame Maxime in a deep voice. I hope I find you well. In excellent form, I thank you, said Dumbledore. My pupils, said Madame Maxime, waving one of her enormous hands carelessly behind her. Harry, whose attention had focused um, completely upon Madame Maxine, now noticed that about a dozen girls and boys, all, by the looks of them, in their late teens, had emerged from the carriages and were now standing behind Madame Maxine. Three brand new Harry Potter chapters land every week, unless told otherwise, on Wednesday evenings. In case you were, in case you're curious, you can go back and listen to Harry Potter 1s, 2, and 3 in their entirety on GrowingUpCast.com. And you can get caught up on book 4, now complete with 15 chapters. And there are many more chapters to go. This book will carry us through the holiday season into next year. Very much looking forward to that. Means I can kind of, you know, let it ride. Just upload some chapters and enjoy the holidays with friends and family and whoever else finds out where I live. Anyway, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. So a little while back, I and my family decided to hit this new-ish, relatively new within the last couple of years. Um, uh, how do I describe it? I guess it's a restaurant called Cafe Nordo down in Pioneer Square in Seattle. So this place specializes in, I would say dinner theater would be would be the, the catch-all term to describe this place. The chef on site has been called the best new chef in Seattle, um, I believe just this year. Might have been last year too, but he might not have been new. But he's very good. And so we went to see something called the Witching Hour because, you know, this was right around that Halloween time. And it was the show they were putting on, all that fun stuff. The so you walk into this place, doors open at seven or whatever, and you meet uh, the the wait staff who are all dressed up like uh, man, I'm not sure how to describe them like chaotic um, Igor esque figures, like in burlap sack type dresses, and the makeup's all crazy, and the hair is all weird, and all that fun stuff. And you get sit down at your table, and you look at the cocktail menu. And they had um, these little tarot cards in front of in front of everybody. Mine was chaos. It's around here somewhere, but mine said chaos. And they had a lot of cocktails that tied back into the tarot cards that were sitting in front of people at the table. So there was a chaos cocktail, but it was like tequila and whiskey in the same glass. And I'm like, even I know that's probably a bad idea. So what I did instead was the the meal was a preset menu of four courses. And there was a cocktail flight where each cocktail was designed to pair up with each of the courses. And um, uh, my brother did the cocktail flight and I'm like, I'm not one to back down from a challenge. So I also did the cocktail flight. Important thing to note is that we hit two bars before we came to this place and I had not eaten until like that, until then, because it was dinner and it was four courses and I wanted to make sure I could finish it all. And so, I had a beer at one bar and I was feeling pretty good because, you know, beer hit me on an empty stomach and I'm like, all right, let's go. And then we went to the second bar, which I'm going to take a quick second and talk about the second bar. So it was called the pharmacy. And to get into it, you have to walk through another bar called Temple. It's a billiards bar in Seattle. So you walk through that bar, go down some stairs, and then in this low hung ceiling, almost like a wine cellar, you come to the pharmacy. I took a picture of it on my phone and it'll be up on the blog uh, after um, after this episode goes up so you guys can see kind of what I'm talking about. But it was very cool. And the bartenders were super knowledgeable. They knew everything about everything when it came to boozing and cruising. 
So, um, another side story that influences this one. I recently bought my first bottle of gin. Um, it's a charity bottle of gin I always like to give around the holiday times because that's when most of the YouTubers and streamers I watch do like charity drives. And so that's when I do my Goodwill stuff. And this was like an $80 bottle of gin that like proceeds went to charity or whatever. So I was like, cool, I'll do it. But I don't have a lot of experience drinking gin. I don't have like my go-to gin drink. So um, I've been trying to order more gin drinks just to like test the waters and see what the world is like. Um, and every gin cocktail I've had, which right now consists of two, I've been really good. The problem is, is that they're all like unique to these restaurants. So it's not like you can go to any bar and order like an old fashioned. I don't know gin drink titles besides like a gin and tonic. And I fucking hate tonic water. So I got me a gin cocktail. I forgot what was in it. It had like vermouth and Prosecco and all sorts of stuff. And it was really clean tasting. It was delicious and it was sweet and I loved it. And I knocked that back after, you know, like 20 minutes. We're just sitting in this place and chatting around. And then after my beer and my cocktail, so, you know, already mixing liquors, bad idea. We go to Cafe Nordo and the walls are covered in like creepy artifacts, like torn off fairy wings and removed monster eyeballs and stuff like that. And it has that big dumb painting of Kronos eating his kids. You know, the one we all know it, that big dumb painting. And there's a bunch of tables all over the place, probably about 30 or 40 of us in this, in this little cafe. I mean, it was sold out night. So there was, there wasn't an empty seat in the house, um, but little tables and the stage is kind of set up in the middle of the tables in like this long room. So picture like a long rectangle where there's um, a giant treasure chest kind of on the far right hand side. Like if you're bird's eye viewing it, giant treasure chest on the far hand right hand side. And just north of that is the main entrance. Then there's a bunch of tables filling up like uh, like half of the room. And then it's the stage and then like two or three more tables before you hit the far left wall. So that's how it was kind of orchestrated. And then like in the top left hand corner, um, just above the stage is like the kitchen and the bathroom and stuff like that. And so we sit down, we get our cocktail flights, um, but they bring out the cocktails with the food. So um, like to start off, they gave us the first cocktail, which was a like a pear cider thing. It tasted like white wine with a bit of like a fruity, more fruity nature to it. So that was pretty nice. I enjoyed that one. I think it had, um, I think it had an herbal element in it as well, but uh, don't really recall that. And then the first course... Um, was really interesting. This place lauds itself on being an interactive dining experience. And when I knew it was a dinner theater, I was concerned that it was going to be like the actors walking up to you at the table and being like, where are you from, young man? Oh, Seattle, local boy. You know, that kind of shit. Uh, it's the same reason why I don't do character dining locations at Disney World. I just want to eat my food. But it turns out, when they say interactive, they don't mean the actors interacting with you. They do that a little bit, but not like aggressively. It's the eating experience that's the interactive part. So they, in the center of the food table, they had four salts and two like jars of herb bundles. And so there are also these sheets of paper and stuff like that. And so basically what they did is they brought out a bowl of soup with a breadstick in it. It was like a big old mortar and pestle style looking thing. And the soup itself was uh, was kind of bland. It served as the foundation for you to be creative with the ingredients that were presented to you on the table. They also brought out two sauces, a mushroom gravy and a Gruyere cheese sauce. And so here's what you did. You took your base foundation of the soup, you took whichever sauce you wanted, one or the other or both, 
and you just pour them into the soup and you swirl that all together and then the, you start building the soup up from there. With the herb bundles, what they did is they brought out tiny cauldrons full of liquid nitrogen. And so you stuck your herb bundle wand into the liquid nitrogen cauldron, swirled it around till it froze, and then crushed it with your hand into the soup. And like, all right, now it's got an herbal element. And then you take the salts. There was like a black truffle salt. There was a dill salt. There was garlic and onion powder, all sorts of stuff. And you know, little dashes here and there of all that stuff. You swirled together with a big breadstick. And then you have a really tasty soup. Now, everybody else I was with said their soup was really good. Mine was okay. I don't think I made mine right, or I didn't add enough sauce or whatever, but the default foundation wasn't to my liking. So, my soup went from being kind of bad to kind of okay by the end of it. I finished it, because um, I was starving, but it was, uh, was alright. And after the soup disappears, uh, we're all just hanging out, and then the giant treasure box opens up, and the musicians walk in, and there's, there was live music for the whole thing, which was very cool. And the show begins. I'm not going to tell you much of the show because, you know, if you're going to see it, you're going to see it. But in all honesty, like the show itself, while very entertaining, had some some issues. Like it was difficult to hear some of the characters over the music, um, especially when they're doing like creepy demon voices that are difficult to understand at the best of times. Not a lot of a uh, not a lot of help on that front. And um, the plot itself of the story was was interesting. Um, but it wasn't like enthralling the best part of the so I'll just so it starts off with this dude trying to summon what he called the nocturnal fears in order to deliver them a message so they remain like dormant for another century or something like that and he casts a spell and he doesn't work and his like uh, his squire there um, is left in the room alone when one of the walls of the uh, of the cafe opens up and like this terrifying hooded black veiled creature comes very very slowly moving out of the hole and the squire screams and runs away and all the lights have died and you see like this black figure slowly moving between the tables and then when the lights come back on the black figure is gone and we're all like looking over our shoulders for it and the entrance of this character who we later find out to be uh, the concept of loneliness that entrance was the highlight of the whole thing because the way the music was, the way the lightings went down, and the, the slow, the really slow movement of that character out of the wall was terrifying. It was, it was the scariest part of the whole night. And then after that, it kind of became a, like a dark comedy of sorts. Um, and was much more funny than it was scary. But that, that original entrance was, was probably the best part. So they play through their, their, um, you know, their scene for a little bit more. I would say it was split into three acts. So act one comes to a close. And then uh, all the lights come back on, and the second course is brought out. And it's brought out in these little wooden boxes, and it is um, this, like, little ball of noodles. And underneath the ball of noodles is, like, tuna and, like, pokey and stuff like that. And you get this little vial. Uh, it said it was a whole bunch of things in this little vial. And you take the cork off, you pour it in a little bowl of noodles, and then you swirl the whole thing together, and then you eat it. Uh, the noodles in the sauce, or whatever was in that vial, had, like, no flavor. But the tuna underneath it was delicious. So once you swirled it all together, it really really brought a lot to the party. And that was very good. And we're talking very small box. Like, maybe two inches by two inches worth of food. Very, very tiny. And, I mean, I am now three cocktails in with nothing else but soup and bread in my stomach. And then a little tiny thing of noodles with some tuna. And then the fourth cocktail lands, which... I think was pickle juice and vodka 
with salt around the rim. It tasted exactly like the soup did without any of the additional shit in it. Um, and so me and my brother, we knocked that back and it was gross. It was terrible. <laughs> it was not a good cocktail. It was just like, oh God. So there was that. So after that, the second act begins. The actors do more things to progress the story. Again, I'm not giving you specific story details, but that's basically the long and the short of it. They do more things. It's very funny and very entertaining. Uh, they interact with the audience a little bit, but not too much. And then the lights go back up and the third course lands. The cocktail for the third course was something called Satan's Tear. And I think it was a spicy drink with like habanero salt and maybe some spicy bitters on something. I forget what the booze was in this one. But the problem was the distance between the cocktails was so great in terms of time that by the time the third drink landed, I was already starting to sober up. So I didn't really want to like dive back down into being drunk again. You know, I was like starting to tread water and keep my head above the surface. So I took a couple sips of it just to try it and then I didn't finish it. But the third meal was a pile of braised goat upon a mount of like mashed parsnips with some mushrooms with a red wine sauce. <coughs> Normally I don't eat goat. It's not a uh, it's not a meat I often seek out because I don't eat lamb and in my head lamb and goat are pretty similar, but I was pretty drunk and I didn't really care at the time, so I was like fuck it, I'll eat goat. Um, and it's not like I have a bad reaction to goat. It's just more of like an ethical thing that I'm not a big fan of like eating goat or lamb, but thought I would give it a try. And the goat itself didn't really blow my socks off. I mean, it's a meat, you know, it doesn't have all that much flavor to it. If I'm perfectly honest, it's kind of like bad beef, I guess would be how I would describe it. It's just, you know, a lot of meat with nothing else there, but the parsnips were unreal and how tasty those were. One of, uh, one of the people I was with thought that the parsnips were mixed with like apples when they were blended together, which might be because they just had such a, such a fascinating flavor to them and that they were awesome. And the mushrooms were mushrooms and give or take them or leave them. I'm not a big mushroom fan, but the parsnips were incredible. And so ate that, cleaned the plate. It was totally cool. And then the third and final act of the show began. They wrap up the story pretty nicely. They all come out for, you know, the standing O and stuff like that and uh, you know, they say tip your servers, you know, thanks and have a great pleasant evening. And then the dessert course comes out and it's this, uh, it's a, it's a big old fried, uh, cream puff on top of like a pumpkin puree cream thing going on. So the cream puff itself didn't actually have the cream in it. It was sitting on top of the cream and I'm eating it. And I'm like, you know, what would have made this dessert better is if the cream went inside the cream puff and it was just a giant fried cream puff that would have made it better. But it was, it was pretty good, nonetheless. And the fourth and final cocktail was, I don't even know what it was. I think it was like pumpkin rum with some cinnamon in it or something like that. It smelled amazing and tasted like shit. So I didn't drink that one. Um, I mean, I tried a little bit, but I like, I didn't finish it. So I left two like unfinished cocktails there. And then we leave a nice big fat tip cause it's a wonderful evening. And we head back to the car and head on home. And overall, the dining experience was lovely. Um, despite what you may have gleaned from what I just said, the overall impression I got from the food was incredibly positive. The vast majority of it was very tasty. And if it wasn't tasty, it was at least fun to create like the meal. The show itself, while difficult to hear at times, was also very entertaining. And what's great is they write their own music for the shows and it's all done in house and all that stuff. 
uh, they've got like a whole thing, like all of next year, they're doing like five different shows and they like tear down all the walls and the ceilings and build it up from scratch. So each time you go for a different show, the interior of the restaurant is completely different, but it's, I believe it's like the same troupe of actors that do it over and over again. The food is excellent. And the entertainment was, was really like, it was an incredible experience. I really enjoyed it. Um, and if you're like on the fence because you don't like actors coming to bother you during a meal, don't worry about that here. It's, um, it's it, like, it's not that kind of place. And even if they do, I'm pretty sure you'll be drunk enough that you'll just be into it. So, because they have a full bar. So you can go nuts to your heart's content at that place. Um, but I would recommend pre-gaming at the pharmacy because it's right around the corner and they have wonderful cocktails. So, you know, if you're out for a night in the town in Seattle, um, make sure you go with friends because Pioneer Square can be a bit sketchy at times, um, especially when it's really late at night. So go with a group and uh, have just a have a grand old time. And I think we'll move on to the next thing in the podcast. So this week for Songs of the Week, we have two fantastic songs, and I'm very, very, very excited about the first one we're going to talk about. I'll tell you more about the second song here in a little bit, but I'm going to plunge right into this because for the first time, on the Going Up cast, we have a fan-recorded cover of one of their favorite songs. This cover comes to us from a Mad Olaf, and this is, in their words, an unused theme song for a very bad TV show called Greg the Bunny. It was originally by the band Ween. Short, sweet, but one of my favorites. So I did a little digging on Greg the Bunny because I don't know anything about Greg the Bunny. And Greg the Bunny was a sitcom that aired in Fox in 2002 with a lot of puppets. Uh, apparently the puppets in this show were treated as, according to the plot here, they were treated as a racial minority who preferred to be called by the politically correct term fabricated Americans, sometimes struggling against second-class citizenship. It appears to be a very adult-focused, kind of heavily driven puppet show thing, which sounds, quite frankly, very interesting. Didn't make it very long, though. Show made it a single season, and as Matt Olaf stated before, this was an unused theme song for this show. I have absolutely no idea where Matt Olaf found this because if it was the unused theme song from a TV show from over 16 years ago that didn't last very long, that's that's some impressive digging right there, Matt Olaf. And your cover is just fucking wonderful. I love it. Let's listen to it. As day turns to night, night turns to day, I can still hear you say, Thanks for the memories C'est toisson la vie Greg the Bunny Pushé de l'avant Quoi du sonnet all that we are Is what we obey And isn't love cheap Greg the Bunny Sail on my friend, sail on mon frère Leave for today, never despair Don't you let them win, Greg the Bunny God, I gotta fucking step up my game! Singing in two languages, I can't do that! Fuck, good job Matt Olaf, thank you very much for sending in your cover It means the world to me, god damn it Oh, I loved it so much. I mean, the second song, it just can't compare. It can't. But I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best. 
So this song comes to us from a fairly new band. Um, actually, they were formed two years after Greg the Bunny got canceled. So there's that. Uh, this band is called Scrum, and their song, Hold My Hand, off their latest album, Single Malt Folk, came out earlier this year. It's just a very upbeat, pleasant song. All right, so Hold My Hand, it's it's about this uh, this dude where it's like, you know what? You know, I, We can just hold hands. That's all, that's all you'd need in life is the beauty of companionship, you know? That's basically what I take away from the song. Scrum is very, like, I don't want to say they're underrated. They're just not a lot of people know about them. They're very, they're very small band. Um, but they pump out some really, really good folk music. It's top, top notch. I think that album they came out with, Single uh, Malt Folk, is incredible. And I will say that this band has a really interesting kind of dichotomy with its discography because uh, this album has a new lead singer in comparison to their previous albums. And the previous albums are much... Like, if you listen to, like, their first album and their latest album in terms of just comparing the songs, it's like two different bands. They're completely different sounds. Uh, but it's all great music, so Scrum is pretty fantastic and if you like folk music at all i would encourage you guys to give them a listen because they're definitely worth taking a couple of minutes there and just chilling out with these really really good folk jams there's a couple of really amazing songs on this album like i'm i love looking back and miss me but let me go but those songs are a little too dour to be on the going up cast so you might just have to go find those ones on your own but hold my hand is beautiful and i love it and you can find that song on the Going Cast playlist on Spotify. And you can also find the whole playlist on GoingUpCast.com. And if you click on the songs section of Going Upcast, you'll find the whole playlist right there for your listening perusal. And if you want to be like Matt Olaf and send in a song for Song of the Week, well, there's lots of ways you can do that. Number one, you can send me an email at GoingUpCast.gmail.com. Number two, you can use the contact page at GoingUpCast.com. Or number three, you can just play it really loudly and I'll stick my phone out the window and record it and then put it on the podcast. I don't know who it's from, but, you know, we'll hear you screaming from like miles away. Just this really heartfelt upbeat song. So that would be incredible. Thank you very much, Matt Olaf, for sending in your song cover. I very much appreciate it. It was fucking beautiful. I can't wait to hear what other wonderful voices exist out there in the world. But in the meantime, we're going to move on to the next thing of the podcast. I've got another story to tell you all from Las Vegas. Isn't that curious? It's almost like this whole episode is basically going to be me talking about Las Vegas. Anyway, I went to Las Vegas with a couple of goals in mind. Um, I mentioned this earlier that I had purchased a bottle of gin for charity uh, this holiday season. And it still hasn't shown up. But I'm trying to prepare for it because... I know the names of whiskey drinks and I know the names of a bunch of like rum drinks and vodka drinks, but I didn't know the names of many gin drinks besides a gin and tonic. And I hate tonic water because it tastes like fucking horrible nonsense. So like throughout Vegas, I was like, all right, I'm going to get my hands on every gin cocktail I can find, get some of these names in my head. So like later on when I go to bars, I can be like, hey, give me this gin drink. The problem was, is that every bar I fucking went to had proprietary specialty cocktails that only they know how to make. And it's bullshit. Go to the place and I'm like, oh, I'll have this. It's got gin in it. 
And I'm like, I'm this. It's, it was called like two birds, one stone. I'm like, that's not a cocktail drink. That's some proprietary shit that you make here. This is delicious, but I can't have it anywhere else. So it's like, you know, I, I looked up gin drinks later and one of them was like bees knees and gin sling or gin fizz or whatever. And you know, none of those sounded particularly good. Even when I asked bartenders to give me like a gin drink, you know, I was like, I'm experimenting with gin. I've never really had it before. Do you have any recommendations? And she was like, oh yeah, we've got this, uh, we've got this gin drink. That's a uh, uh, gin and uzu which is um a it's a fruit it's like a lemon and lime mixture it's very popular in japan and it's fucking delicious uh, i was like uzu and champagne or something like that and she's like oh it's delicious it's super refreshing You're, you'll love it i'll get you one i was like cool bring it on and she walks over back with this it was like hot pink or something like that it was fucking delicious and i loved it and i was like oh this is great what's this called and she was like oh it doesn't really have a name it's just something that we make here and i was like fucking god Damn it! I need gin drinks I can order elsewhere, not just delicious one-time gin drinks. Sadly, this story does not have a fun conclusion because I still don't know the names of any fucking gin drinks. So, just had a lot of really tasty gin drinks. I know I like gin now, but I don't know any fucking gin drinks. So I'm going to have to look these things up later. But, this story kind of spears into the next one. Towards the end of the whole trip, we were in uh, Mandalay Bay, um, which is a very nice resort. I was a really big fan. And we went to this place called 1923. It was a speakeasy that was kind of underneath the escalators on the way to, like, the shops and stuff of Mandalay Bay. And, um, you know, swing music. It's very dark in there because it's, like, a basement. It's behind, like, this other fake bar. It's very cool. I loved it. And I went in there, and I had this thing called the Gangster's Holy Grail. It was, like, ginger liqueur... Uh, it had like a sugar cube in it. It had like some ginger orange beer in it. And then it had a alcohol that I, being a big dumb nerd, only know through a very thick accent. Every year, I'll take a vacation. And I'd go down to this little cafe along the, along the water. And I'd order myself a phony blanket. And I had this vision that I'd see you across the way. Maybe with a wife and kids. You wouldn't say nothing to me, nor me to you, but we both know that you made it. That's my terrible Michael Caine impression from Dark Knight Rises when he was talking about a funny pranka. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? What is that? Fern I have like I'm like typing in funny pranka. And I'm like, I don't know how to spell this, Michael Caine. And it's like F-E-R-N-T-E-E-T, your Fernet Branca. I don't fucking know. I don't remember how to pronounce it. And the gangster's holy grail had it. I could not taste it in the cocktail. All I could taste was ginger. And I'm like, this is so annoying. Because I'd been talking about it the whole trip. I'd seen it in a couple of places. I'd just never gotten around ordering it. And I'm like, this is stupid. I'm going to find out what this fucking shit tastes like. And I'm going to order it. So I did. I got myself a fine branca. And, which, uh, according to my, my family, sounds like I'm saying furry blanket. I got myself a furry blanket. <laughs> a fine branca. Anyway. Um... So I ordered it and it shows up. It is this pitch black, thin syrup of a drink. The closest thing I can say it looks like is fucking Jägermeister. Like a watered down version of Jägermeister. Now a lot of you just threw up in your mouths right now. And that's totally understandable. The, this stuff smells incredible. 
it's super minty and herbally. It's really clean smelling. And I was like, it kind of smells like laundry detergent, I'll be honest. Um, and so I took a sip. The closest alcohol I can say it tastes like is creme de menthe. It is very mint forward, in, like including the fact that there is a version of a funny baka that comes with like extra mint. It's like a minty version of the Fernet Branca. And I didn't get to try that. But overall, it's pretty dang good. It's also incredibly strong. It's 35%. It is uh, not to be fucked with. So I'm glad I tried it. It is wasted in the Gangster's Holy Grail. You can't taste it at all. Um, and it is a singularly unique kind of flavor profile. I was expecting a pretty strong like black licorice anise flavor going in. But mint was not what I was expecting. And... I, honestly, it like if I was to describe it in terms of like layman's terms, it was I would probably call it a mixture between mouthwash and cough syrup. <laughs> doesn't sound very pleasant, doesn't. But if you were ever curious about what Michael Caine was drinking on the sides of those fucking that fucking river, looking at Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle just chilling it, it's it's fucking minty cough syrup is the best way to describe it. It's tastier than that. I want to emphasize that it is not bad. But that's kind of what it's like. I mean, you know, people are into weird shit. So sometimes you just want some minty cough syrup and seeing what Michael Caine was talking about. But that's what Michael Caine was talking about, and I'm not sure it was worth it. But I'm glad I finally solved that mystery. I can check that one off my old mental bucket list and put that one to bed. And, you know, if you're ever in a, in a bar that happens to have a Fernie Branca, and I know I'm mispronouncing it, I don't really care anymore. I'm just going to keep calling it a Fernie Branca. Because that's what Michael Caine said. So, and when is he ever wrong? Exactly, exactly my point. But you know, that's uh, that's enough of my boozy stories. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. One of the things Las Vegas is super known for are their Cirque du Soleil shows, and Vegas has I think three, four, five of them right now going on simultaneously. And I have never seen a Cirque du Soleil show. Um, despite the fact that I've been to Vegas now twice in one year, I, I it just never never came around. And uh, this time was the time for that all to change. Now, I had my pick of the litter. We could have gone to see O at um, the Bellagio. We could have gone to go see Ka, the Michael Jackson one, the Beatles one. No, 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 no. No, no, no. My family is, uh, they don't do anything, you know, the old-fashioned way. We went to go see Zumanity. Now, I don't expect that to mean a lot to any of you out there, but Zumanity is uh, Cirque du Soleil's, <clears throat> looks both ways, 18 and over adult show. Yes, put the kids to bed for this story, ladies and gentlemen. It's about to get uh, risque. Anyway, it's in New York, New York, which I thought was a bad idea of a casino, because why would you build a casino that reminds people of an infinitely better city like las vegas is a lot of fun and i enjoy my time there but if it was a choice between going to las vegas or new york city there's no contest new york city wins hands down every time new york city is one of the best cities on the planet that's just end of this end of discussion so you go inside new york city i actually took a couple of pictures of uh inside new york city it's got like these amazing all right i'm gonna tell you a huge sidetrack here um i'll come back to zoom eating in a hot second but one of my all-time favorite things ever is theming and, like, aesthetics. 
aesthetics. I'm a big fan of aesthetics because I'm a sucker for like packaging when it comes to like fancy bottles of booze. And the fancier the bottle, the happier I am, that sort of thing. That's one of the big reasons I love Disney so much is because when theming is done correctly, you lose yourself in the fantasy so much more easier. It, it becomes immersive to a whole nother degree when the buildings are incredible and the characters are awesome and the music and the sense and the sounds and the sights and it all merges together and becomes this incredible, beautiful, like fantasy world that you can just completely dive yourself into. The Venetian nails this. The fake painted skies, the river going through the shopping center, it's all incredible and I loved it. I took a lot of pictures of it, you can go find them up on the blog. It's It was beautiful. Caesar gets this to a pretty good degree as well. Took a couple pictures of that. They also have a fake painted sky, but their roof is dumb, so it's the illusion is not as solid as it was at the Venetian. New York, New York does this to a little degree. What they have are these like fake building facades inside the casino on like a cobblestone street. And the effect is good, the effect is solid. It's not on the same level as the Venetian or Caesars or, and, and none of them are on the same level as Disney. Let's be perfectly honest. The forced perspective of these buildings was not very strong. Uh, it was pretty clear that they were like really tiny windows, you know, that sort of thing. But I, you know, I enjoy that stuff a lot. And that's one of the things that intrigues me about stuff like Vegas, you know. You get that, that theming element that I, that I love so much. Zumanity's in New York, New York. <laughs> and it's their adult-only show. So, I had never been to a Cirque du Soleil show, but I had expectations. You know, Cirque du Soleil, there, it's a lot of acrobatics focused. It's a lot of crazy stunts and shit because it's all about what the human body can do. And it's all about taking you on a journey. There's usually a story they tell. Um, it's usually pretty whimsical and lighthearted based on commercials and other bits and bobs I've seen about Cirque du Soleil. Zumanity had a lot of those elements um, to a lesser degree. Now, like I said, this was my first Cirque du Soleil show, so I'm not sure if this was better, worse, on a par with what they usually do. I don't know. I have no frame of reference. But what the impression I took away from this was they used the adult nature of the entire show as... I don't want to say this as a detriment, but it feels like they felt they didn't need to be as big and as flashy with some of their stuff because of the adult theming on it. And let's not beat around the bush anymore. There was a lot of nudity on the stage. There, are you happy? It um <laughs> came from it came from all sources. Um it was pretty equal across the field, you know? Every type of being and every um persuasion of sexuality and gender were basically represented upon the stage. Um which is wonderful. Like we we had we had the entire spectrum that I could think of um, on represented upon this stage. So there's a little something for everybody. Let's just put it that way. Um, but it had like, for example, there were, there were bits with like the ribbons from the ceilings and there was trapeze and there were these things with hoops and there was some like water, uh, based activities and all sorts of stuff. But it wasn't anything in terms of the acrobatics, as far as I am aware, it's not anything you wouldn't see at other Cirque du Soleil shows. It just felt like it was done on a smaller scale because it wasn't as necessary to be as flashy because they were naked while they did it. You, do, you see, do you see kind of what I'm saying? It was still very good and I really enjoyed it. It was just, I felt like if they weren't naked, they'd probably be doing 
a bit more intense, I guess. Not to say that the performers were not doing some mind-blowing shit. They were, like, supporting themselves by, like, the back of their head as they're spinning faster than a top at, like, 50 feet elevation, just holding themselves up with nothing but their neck, and it's just, like, crazy shit like that. Or they're holding themselves up by their toes in the same position, just crazy stuff. These these people are professionals, and it's mind-blowing to see what they're capable of. This show also does one of my historically least favorite things, because I've been on the receiving end of it, and I do not enjoy it. That's audience participation. Now, this time, they did not talk or interact or look at me at all because I was sitting pretty far away, and I got to enjoy audience participation because other people got dragged up onto the stage to suffer horribly at the hands of these, you know, performers who were in a very um, open mindset because of the setting and the theme of the show, and the people from the audience were not in the same place. Leads to comedy. And the comedy was very strong. <laughs> These poor people were being like, you know, they would uh, teach them like some dance moves and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, it would just kind of spiral out from there. And it was very, very funny to just laugh uproariously at these poor, embarrassed people on stage. Um, but it was all in good fun. So Zumanity was just, it was a lot of fun, I got to say. Uh, it's like two hours long. There's no intermission. And it was super funny. The stunts were incredible. Um, there wasn't like a big sense of a connecting story. It was just, you know, more of the theme of sex and that kind of just tied everything together. And it was, it was incredibly impressive. I got to I got to say, got to give it up. And those Cirque du Soleil folks know how to put on one hell of a weird circus, which I think is what Cirque du Soleil translates into. I think it's French for weird circus. Anyway, probably going to go to another Cirque du Soleil show come in the, the, in the, um, Anyway, I'm probably going to go to another Cirque du Soleil show in the spring when I go back to Las Vegas. I'm not sure which one we're going to do that time. Um, my brother is saying we do Ka because he's done that one before, and apparently the stage does some crazy-ass shit. So, very much looking forward to that. But that is, uh, that's Zoomanity. Um, probably the, uh, the, like, the big, that was, like, the big show we did that week. We didn't really go to see any other theater or concerts or anything like that. It was really, Zoomanity was, like, the big one, you know? So... There you go. I think that'll do it for this segment of the podcast, and let's keep skipping on to the next one. So recently, very recently, the latest Pokemon game has landed on the brand new Nintendo Switch Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee. I have played Pokemon since Game Boy Advance era. Uh, I kind of skipped by Game Boy Color, landed in the Game Boy Advance, my all-time favorite Pokemon game still to this day is Pokemon Crystal, and that's just because I played the ever-living shit out of it when I was a kid. And, of course, I've played almost every Pokemon game since, including a lot of the spin-offs. I played, like, every Pokemon Ranger game. I loved those. I played um, every Pokemon... Well, not every. Um, all the good Pokemon Mystery Dungeon games. Those are fucking incredible. I love those games so much. They always make me cry at the end, but they're very good. And the core games, oh man, it's just, I played Pearl and Platinum. I played Leaf Green. I played Emerald. I played X. I did not like 
black and white or black and white two, so I kind of skipped those. Uh, and then I played Moon and Ultra Sun. I played Alpha Sapphire. I just I love I love me some Pokemon's, and I knew when this game got announced that it was gonna be a little different. Um, and a lot of people that I've spoken to are giving this game a hard pass because of how different it is. It um, has the Pokemon Go style of catching Pokemon. So instead of your Pokemon battling wild Pokemon, you simply just feed like throw them berries and throw Pokeballs at them until eventually they just give up through sheer attrition. You know, that's how you capture Pokemon in this game. Um, this game is a remake of Pokemon Yellow, which was the original uh, original generation. So the original 150, you know, for all those old school, uh, you know, uh, purists, I guess would be the good good term for that. And I went with uh, Let's Go Eevee because Pikachu's fine, but I mean, if it's a choice between those two, there's no contest. Fucking Eevee's way better than Pikachu because Pikachu can turn into one fucking thing and that's Raichu and Raichu sucks. So you keep him as Pikachu, but Eevee can be fucking anything. And I always like that because I kind of equate that to you know, myself growing up, it's like, you can be whatever you want to be. Just like fucking Eevee. You could you could spit water from your mouth. You could turn into fire. You can get, like, hair gel. You can haunt people's nightmares. You can get a bow in your hair. Like, all sorts of crazy shit. Eevee can be anything. Uh, it's, 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 you know, all the, all the doors are open before you if you're an Eevee. So, went with Eevee. And I am two hours in. I just hit Cerulean City. So I, I, I dealt with Brock, I went through Mount Moon, um, I met Team Rocket for the first time, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of changes to this game that really make it different from the standard core Pokemon game. Now, a big push for this game was the cross-play abilities between Let's Go Eevee and Pokemon Go. You can transfer Pokemon between them, uh, you can have your little Pokemon from Let's Go Eevee wander around in your phone to help them level up. You can also, if you got the deluxe edition of Let's Go Eevee or Pikachu like I did, you can put them in the Pokeball controller like you could with the Pokewalker back with Heart Gold and Soul Silver. By the way, Heart Gold was fucking amazing. Um, and you can you can level them up that way too. I'm um, probably not going to do that because here's the thing. This game is, I mean, I get it. It's a Pokemon game. They're not difficult games, but this game is ludicrously easy to uh, an insulting degree. And I'll get more into that later, but basically I'm not going to put, I'm not going to power level my guys. The game's easy enough. It doesn't need it. So there's that the controller itself. The little Pokeball controller is a lot of fun. Um, whenever you catch a new Pokemon, the the primary color of that Pokemon uh, like lights up behind the, the little joystick button. So like if it's a Clefable, it's pink. If it's a Geodude, it's gray. You know that kind of stuff. And it's it's a very smart little controller. Also, the controller makes the sound of the Pokemon when you catch them. So it's like it does a little, little like pew pew kind of thing. Or if it's Pikachu, it'll say Pikachu and stuff like that. And it's awesome and I love it. Um, I wish it was a little bigger, just a little bigger, a little meatier. Feels like I'm holding like a like a fucking kiwi or something like that. I don't know. It's just a little, it's a little dainty. It's a little small, but maybe it's my giant hands. I don't know. So big fan of that. Uh, graphics wise, the game's incredible. I mean, it's 
it might not be the best looking Pokemon game ever. Like X and Alpha Sapphire are both incredible looking games. When we finally broke into this this realm of 3D play, it it really kind of stepped it up a notch for me in Pokemon. It's just it looks incredible. I love playing it. I love looking at it. I love the music. It's all there. It's all perfect. It's fantastic. A couple of things that are weird with the game. Number one, uh, as far as I can tell, I haven't dug deep enough to, to contradict myself here, but it seems like experience share is on by default um, forever. And that certainly kind of changes things. It like you get experience by battling trainers, battling gym leaders, like always, or by using the Pokemon Go style of catching wild Pokemon. And if you you know put a little spin on the ball or get like an excellent or a great, or you catch a lot of them in a row, your multiplier goes up, which means your Pokemon get more experience. So leveling up is easier than it has ever been before. You don't have to type match to level up. You just fucking throw your endless supply of Pokeballs at every Weedle you fucking come across and your multiplier will just rank up and then all of a sudden, boom, you're max level. It's like, it's super easy to level up in this game. Not only that, but there's this... Alright, this is the first somewhat core Pokemon game where there's co-op. You and a buddy can sit down on the same couch or next to each other and your buddy can take one of the fucking Joy-Con controllers and join you in your Pokemon battle. Or just wandering around. Like, there's another character right next to yours just kind of following you around. And what I thought was really interesting, and I'm not sure how this works out, to be quite frank with you, but the when I, when I shook the controller to bring in the co-op player called the support trainer, the support trainer doesn't have their own unique party. They pull the Pokemon from your core six. So, for example, I've got my Eevee and I've got my Pidgey. And so whenever I called in the support trainer, the Pidgey came out. Which, if you if you think about it this way, like I was doing for most of the evening, you get two turns for every one turn of the opponents. Of your own team. So not only are you hitting them twice as many times as they are hitting you, but you're getting that XP. And holy you can see where i'm going with it's so much easier to play this game than any other game before it because you get twice as many turns to do anything you can attack you can heal you can swap pokemon it's obscene and to my best not like every time i did it the opponents didn't scale up to correspond with the sudden power shift they remained the same. It's it's obs- like I went up against Brock, way under leveled, with no fucking like decent Pokemon to go up against his Rock types. But through sheer attrition, because of the support trainer, I won first shot because it's it's obs- it's so easy to beat him nowadays. It's just you know just keep fucking smacking him around. He'll eventually go down, and that's exactly what happened. Now. One thing I've noticed with the gyms is that they won't let you fight the gym unless you have the type appropriate Pokemon to defeat the gym. You can't fight Brock unless you have a water or a grass type Pokemon in your core six, which is weird. 
That's a weird change that just kind of came out of nowhere. Which meant I had to go into that fucking gym battle with a goddamn Bellsprout on my team. It's like a level 4 Bellsprout. Dude died instantly. Did fucking nothing. And I'm just like, clearly I didn't need the Bellsprout. I beat him anyway without it. Because my fucking Eevee is the man. And his name's Spadoodles. And you will treat him with respect. So there was that. There was that pretty big difference, I gotta say. Um... The other couple of things that I'm really enjoying with this game are really big kind of quality of life changes. Number one, you can access the Pokemon box at any point ever. You're wandering around in the forest and all your dudes are dead but one. You could swap them out with fucking anybody in your Pokemon box. You can do that at any time. That's rad. Number two, you can see Pokemon in the tall grass. There are no more random encounters in this game. The only encounters you have to put up with in this game are the ones you choose to be a part of, which is incredible. Mount Moon was a breeze because you could walk around all those fucking Zubats. You don't have to fight every single goddamn one of them. You can just avoid them. You can just walk right the fuck around them. That, holy shit, that is a game changer. That is a huge game changer. Not only does it help you figure out what Pokemon are in the area just by looking around, you don't have to fight every single goddamn last one of them. It's incredible. Why haven't they come up with this shit sooner? So that is probably my favorite change. I'm a real big fan of that. Uh, number three, the walls of like buildings are way more fucking detailed than they've ever been before. There's like posters and shit. Um, like just the little the attention to detail in some of these places like when you go into a pokemart you see the potions and you see the antidotes all laid out and they are correct in terms of visual appearance the posters are a lot of fun there's a lot of easter eggs all over the place like in the bedroom when you first turn on the game there's a poster of a nidorino fighting a gengar and if you remember those were the two pokemon that fought each other in the original opening animation sequence of the beef of the first fucking game and the anime it was, it was the first, those were the first two to fight. Because remember, the anime starts off with the little Game Boy, like, pixel art, and then it morphs into, like, the anime style, and it gets really intense really quickly. So that's a fun little Easter egg. Um, gosh, what else? More or less, it is just, it is just Pokemon Yellow. I mean, you're going through all the motions. You're delivering partials to Professor Oak. You're going through Mount Moon. You're fighting Team Rocket. Oh, of course, Team Rocket now has Jesse and James from the goddamn an anime. And it's so weird calling Pokemon an anime. I never really thought of it as an anime, but it super is an anime. Um, no matter what anybody says, that is anime as fuck. So they're fun. They're fun to see around. Uh, they say Team Rocket's blasting up again, and Jesse has or James has his little rose, and Meowth doesn't talk, but it's clearly a very intelligent Meowth. So I will give it that. Seeing the Pokemon in the tall grass makes the world feel so much more alive. You know, like. You see them walking around. You see the Pages flying. You see the Ekans slither. You see the Rattats or Rattatus just fucking zipping all over the place. It's it's such a fun, awesome change. I'm a real, real big fan of that. So, overall, I'm very pleased with this game. I am going to lose a lot of hours to this game. Easy. And my fucking Eevee is the most adorable little bastard I've, like, that's my problem with these Pokemon games. Um, and that's why I think I knew I was going to love this one more than any others. Like, I get attached to my Pokemon, especially when you give them nicknames. Fucking Spadoodles. 
And this game is all about you and your little Pokemon buddy. That's what this game is all about. It's you and your pal on a goddamn journey against the world. And no other Pokemon game really encapsulates that feeling quite like this one does. Because it's just right out the gate. It's like you and your Pokemon are going to be best friends forever. And you're going to love each other. And he's going to be adorable and wear little hats and jackets. Oh, it's the best. So, if you were on the fence about it because you're like, ah, it's not a real Pokemon game. Let me assuage your fears. This is an incredible Pokemon game. I believe the changes they've made in terms of catching the Pokemon are, like, not important. <laughs> I was trying to think of a fancier word to say that, but they're just, they don't matter, you know? I, you know, I like fighting wild Pokemon, just beating them into submission until they become your friends as much as the next guy. But one of the benefits, I think, of using the Pokemon Go style instead of the other one is that with this system, when you become ridiculously overpowered, it doesn't matter when you catch Pokemon. Hasn't that always bothered you? Like, you're in a new zone, your dudes are level, like, 75, and you see a Pokemon you haven't caught yet, but he's only level 26 or something like that, and you can't find a move that hits him softly enough in order for him to get bruised down enough for you to catch him without outright killing him? You don't have to worry about that here. You just fucking lob a Pokeball, and boom, he's yours. Done. Just like that. Just like that. All those, all those fears of killing those Pokemon are gone forever. Now, this Pokemon game does not lend itself easily to things like Nuzlocke's, because... There's no more randomly encountering the first Pokemon in each zone. You just you just see them. And then you can kind of pick and choose what you want. So we're going to have to come up with a new type of hardcore gaming thing for this game. Which also doesn't really work. Because you can't release Pikachu or Eevee in either version. I mean, you might be able to. But I did not check. Because the whole point is that you go on this adventure with your buddy. And if you lose... Eevee or Pikachu, well, then what the fuck are you doing? I have no idea. Um, also, I will say this. Uh, th I did not know this going in. I just wanted the fun controller. Within the controller, it's like a gift that comes with the controller, is fucking Mew. A level one Mew is in the fucking controller. And you can get him as a gift and put him right in your party. And that's exactly what I did. So my core team, my like the, th the three that won't fluctuate are, at least for right now, are Eevee, Spadoodles, Pidgey, and Mew. Those are my core three. I think there's also a Pikachu in there, there's a Bellsprout, and there's a fucking Zubat or some shit. Like, those three are fucking, who gives a shit? But the, the, the two that I think are going to stick with me the whole time are Eevee and Mew. Because I've never had Mew on my team. <laughs> because it's impossible to get Mew. So now I have Mew, and Mew's on my fucking team. Right now he all knows Pound and Swift. But I have a feeling he's going to be one hell of a powerhouse when it really, when shit really hits the fan. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So yeah, just Pokemon, Pokemon Let's Go is awesome. I, I think I'm going to sink 50, 60 hours into this game. Easy. Fucking easy. So it's not a half-assed Pokemon game. It's, it's, it is to my, as far as I'm concerned, it's a core Pokemon game with a little bit of um, cross-pollination between this and Pokemon Go. And you don't have to fucking do that if you don't want to. Like, I'm not doing it because the dudes I have in Pokemon Go are way over-fucking-powered. And to bring them in would just be... It'd be stupid. It would ruin the game. The game's easy enough without doing that. So, you know. Do what you will with your own Pokemon Let's Go if you're getting it. And if you are, which version did you get? And who's your favorite Pokemon? 
Now, my my two favorite Pokemon are unfortunately not in Pokemon Let's Go Eevee. One of them is technically in Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu, and the other one is not in this generation. My my two top are Lucario and Arcanine. Those are my two favorites. Uh, but I think this time around I might just pick myself up a Vulpix and get me a Ninetales. I've never had a Ninetales before. Um, but I've had an Arcanine and like, you know, if I played 10 Pokemon games, I had an Arcanine somehow and like eight of them. You know, I fucking love Arcanine. I always made it my mission to get that Growlithe, get that Arcanine. Arcanine was the shit. So, but anyway, which version of Pokemon Let's Go are you getting? And if you're not getting it, what was your, what's your favorite Pokemon? You can answer both questions or neither question. And you can send me those answers. I go and cast at gmail.com. I would love to hear them. I would love to read them. I told you my favorite Pokemon. I'm curious what yours are. Everybody has got a favorite Pokemon, even if you don't play it. Although Eevee is rapidly climbing that list. I mean, one of the one of the big reasons I liked Lucario so much was because he was in like Smash Brothers. And then I saw like Lucario and the Mystery of Mew. And Lucario is such a fucking cool dude in that movie. God, I love Lucario. And Arcanine's just a big fluffy fire dog that you can ride. I mean, I don't even need to explain further beyond that. Also, technically, Arcanine's a legendary Pokemon. So, you know, throwing that out there. But that's enough talking about Pokemon Let's Go. It's very good. You should get it. And let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. And finally this week, I want to talk about a movie I saw not that long ago and kind of highlight some of the best parts of it and gloss over some of the not-so-good parts of it. And that would be Bohemian Rhapsody, the air quotes biopic about Freddie Mercury and Queen from their formation in the early 70s. I think that's right. To the Live Aid concert in the 80s. I'm really, I'm really good with my dates to sound like an authority. Anyway... The movie's pretty good. I'll give it that. I mean, the fact that they went straight for the lip-syncing without even trying to cast somebody who could sing approximately even close to the abilities of Freddie was smart because nobody's on his level. Adam Lambert's a very good singer, but he's just not Freddie Mercury. That's just kind of the long and the short of it. He's not. He's not Freddie Mercury. Nobody could touch Freddie. He was the best. End of discussion. And the movie d- focuses on some of the more interesting aspects of Queen, at least from like my point of view, being like a really good Queen fan. Uh, they talked about how Bohemian Rhapsody was written and recorded, which I thought was awesome. Uh, they kind of talked about uh, a couple of other songs, like We Will Rock You and um, Another One Bites the Dust. There were songs that they touched on. And then they kind of moved into the more disco-y side of things when they got into like um, Radio Gaga and stuff like that. Uh, throughout most of the film, though, Freddie's a bit of a douchebag. And, you know, it's easy to make allowances because he was so well-loved. Because he's like, oh, he's a rock star. He can do those sorts of things. But I'm like, Freddie's kind of a dick. Like, you know, he's mean to his family. He's mean to his friends. Blah, 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 blah. So there's all that stuff. Basically, the best part of the film is the last 30 minutes of the film. When they basically recreate the entire Live Aid performance. And Live Aid was this really big concert that happened all over the world. And it was designed to raise money for kids in Africa. Run by Bob Geldof, who himself was a musician and like a producer and a promoter and later on went to star in the Pink Floyd movie, The Wall. And it was, I think Live Aid on the whole was pretty successful. It's kind of tainted with some really weird moments like um, how in the, I think it was in Philadelphia was the second stage. It was, there was one in, there was Wembley Stadium in London and then there was, uh, it's like John F. Kennedy Stadium in Philadelphia or something like that. I can't I can't really remember right now. But there was an air quotes Led Zeppelin reunion in the American stage and it had Phil Collins on the drums and it was a complete shit show. 
Um, but nobody really likes to talk about that. The highlight of Live Aid for sure was Queen's 20 minutes performance. So the movie would have you believe that this performance of Queen at Live Aid was a reunion, which is not the case. Queen never broke up. Um, so that was just a complete fabrication. But the performance in the movie, like the last 30 minutes of it, it is just the entire Live Aid set list. And it's, it's magical. It sends chills up your spine with how like big the audience is and just all like the movements that um freddie's doing on the stage and you go back and watch like the footage of it and it's like the same to a t like they did their homework and it's it's awesome seeing live aid done in, in like you know hd remastered kind of thing um i was a really big fan of it and later like after i went home i listened to like the live aid recordings and then i went back and listened to like the live uh wow live live at Wembley there you go live at Wembley recording the Queen did later on after the live aid performance uh, when they realized they could sell out the whole stadium by themselves so overall the movie's very good um and I'm seeing I'm not sure if it's like a new trend but when I went to see the movie I saw a trailer for a movie I didn't know was happening called Rocket Man which it seems to be a very similar veined movie instead of focusing on Queen it's talking about Elton John so I'm like you know, if people want to start making these sorts of movies like more often, go for it. That's totally fine. I remember they made a Jimi Hendrix movie not that long ago with Andre 3000. And, you know, I love that sort of shit. So, yeah, just keep, keep cranking them out. It's just when you do a singer like Freddie, just use the original recordings, which they did. I mean, it seems like in Rocket Man, they have somebody else singing Elton's songs, which is totally fine. Elton, I think, while being a good singer, he's a lot more achievable for a normal person to reach. Freddie was just leaps and bounds above everybody else he was just that incredible but overall i was very pleased with the movie very pleased indeed but like i said best part last 30 minutes that's all you need to see you can probably find clips of it on youtube and stuff like that or you could just go back and watch the original live aid performance which is all over youtube and then you get the you get the whole feel of it you know that's that's all you really need freddie was the best you don't need that other faff just watch live aid it's fucking rad anyway i think that'll do it for this week an incredibly long podcast to be sure. Thank you all very much for listening. Enjoy the Harry Potter chapters that will come out later this week. In fact, they come out tomorrow. Get ready. They land tomorrow evening. And I will see you all next week for another fantastic episode of the Going Upcast. Have a happy Thanksgiving. And, oh, it's real quick right here at the end. If you are a Patreon supporter, the next Patreon live stream is going to be this upcoming Sunday in the afternoonish eveningish time ish i don't know what time it's gonna be but it's gonna be on sunday and i'll send out a message sunday morning letting you guys know exactly when it's gonna go down but it's gonna be on november 25th this upcoming sunday thank you all very much for listening i hope to see you at the live stream have a happy fucking thanksgiving i'll see you all next week bye